Tertium Organum by Peter Yaspensky. Read by Alice Flanagan. Chapter 22. Because of the length of this chapter, I have divided it into three parts. This is part three. And Yaspensky continues. Mysticism penetrates into all religions. In India, Professor James says, training in mystical insight has been known from time immemorial under the name of yoga. Yoga means the experimental union of the individual with the divine. It is based on preserving exercise and the diet, posture, breathing, intellectual concentration and moral discipline vary slightly in the different systems which teach it. The yogi or disciple who has by these means overcome the obscurations of his lower nature sufficiently enters into the conditioned term samadhi and he comes face to face with the facts which no instinct or reason can ever know. Dot, dot, dot. When a man comes out of samadhi, Vedantists assure us that he remains enlightened, a sage, a prophet, a saint. His whole character changed, his life changed, illumined. The Buddhists use the word samadhi as well as the Hindus, but dhyana is their special word for higher states of contemplation. Higher stages still of contemplation are mentioned, a region where there exists nothing and where the meditator says, there exists absolutely nothing, and stops. Then he reaches another region. He says, there are neither ideas nor absence of ideas, and stops again. Then another region, where, having reached the end of both idea and perception, he stops finally. This would seem to be, not yet, nirvana, but as close an approach to it as life affords. And this is Asterix, Professor W. James, The Varieties of Religious Experience, pages 400 and 401. And Dispensky now continues. In Mohammedism, there is much of mysticism also. The most characteristic expression of Muslim mysticism is Persian Sufism. This is at the same time a religious sect and a philosophical school of high idealistic character, which struggled against the materialism and against the narrow fanaticism and the literal understanding of the Quran. The Sufis interpreted the Quran mystically. Sufism, this is the philosophical free-thinking of Mohammedism, united with an entirely original, symbolical and bright and sensuous poetry, which has always a hidden mystical character. The blossoming of Sufism occurred in the early centuries of the second millennium of the Christian era. Sufism remained for a long time incomprehensible to European thought. From the point of view of Christian theology and Christian morality, the mixing up of sensuous and religious ecstasy is incomprehensible. But in the Orient, the two coexisted with perfect harmony. In the Christian world, the flesh has always been regarded as inimical to the spirit. In the Muslim world, the fleshly and sensuous was accepted as a symbol of spiritual things. The expression of philosophical and religious truths in the language of love was a widely disseminated custom throughout the Orient. These things are Oriental flowers of eloquence. All allegories, all metaphors are taken from love. Muhammad fell in love with God, the Arabs say, desiring to convey the brightness of the religious adore of Muhammad. And Dispensky quotes, Select for thyself a new wife every spring of the new year, because last year's calendar is no good, says the Persian poet and philosopher Sadi. And in such curious form, Sadi expresses the thought that Ibsen puts in the mouth of Dr. Stockman. And this is a quote, Truths are not as many believe like Long Living's Methuselahs. Under normal conditions, a truth may exist about 17 or 18 years, rarely longer. Nespensky continues, 
The poetry of the Sufis will become clearer to us as we always keep in mind this general sensuous character of the literary language of the Orient, the heritage of profound antiquity. A classic example of this ancient literature is the Song of Songs. Many parts of the Bible and all ancient myths and stories are distinguished by the sensuousness of form strange to us. The Persian mystical poetical Sufis wrote about the love of God in expressions applicable to their beautiful women. Says the translator of Jami and other poets, Davis, and in quotes, because, as they explained this, nobody can write in heavenly language and be understood, end of quote, and in brackets, Persian mystics. The idea of Sufism, Max Muller says, is a loving union of the soul with God. The Sufi holds that there is nothing in the human language that can express the love between the soul and God so well as the love between man and woman, and that if he is to speak of the union between the two at all, he can only do so in the symbolic language of earthly love. And to continue the quote, When we read some of the Sufi enraptured poetry, we must remember that the Sufi poets use a number of expressions which have a recognised meaning in their language. Their sleep means meditation, perfume, hope of divine favour, kisses and embraces, the raptures of piety, wine means spiritual knowledge, etc. The flowers which a lover of God had gathered in his rose garden and which he wished to give to his friends, so overpowered his mind by their fragrance that they fell out of his lap and withered, Sadi says. A poet desires to express by this that the glory of the aesthetic visions pales and fades away when it has to be put into human language. And in brackets, this comes from Max Muller, Theosophy. And Aspinsky continues, Generally speaking, never and nowhere has poetry been so blended with mysticism as in Sufism. The Sufi poets frequently lived the strange lives of hermits, anachorites and wanderers, and at the same time singing of love, the beauty of women, the aroma of roses and wine. Jalal Eden describes as follows the communion of the souls with God. Nespensky quotes, A loved one said to her lover to try him early one morning, O such a one, son of such a one, I marvel whether you hold me more dear or yourself. Tell me truly, O ardent lover. He answered, I am so entirely absorbed in you that I am full of you from head to foot. O oh, my own existence, nothing but the man remains. In my being is nothing besides you, O oh, object of my desire. Therefore, I am thus lost in you. As a stone which has been changed into a pure ruby is filled with the bright light of the sun. End of quote, and that is from Max Muller. And Nespensky continues, in two well-known poems of Jami, the 15th century, Salaman and Absal, and Yusuf and Zalaika, the ascending of the soul, its purification and its union with God is represented in the most passionate forms. Professor James pays great attention in his book to mystical states under narcosis. This is a realm that public opinion and ethical philosophy have long branded as pathological, though private practice and certain lyric strains of poetry seem still to bear witness of its ideality. Nitrous oxide and ether, especially nitrous oxide, when sufficiently diluted in air, stimulates the mystical consciousness in an extraordinary degree. Depth beyond depth of truth seems revealed to the inhaler. This truth fades out, however, or escapes at the moment of coming to, and if any words remain over in which it seemed to clothe itself, they proved to be of the various nonsense. Nevertheless, the sense of profound meaning having been there persists, 
and I know more than one person who is persuaded that in the nitrous oxide trance we have a genuine metaphysical revelation. Some years ago, I myself made some observations on this aspect of nitrous oxide intoxication and reported them in print. One conclusion was forced upon my mind at the time and my impression of its truth has ever since remained unshaken. It is that our normal waking consciousness, rational consciousness as we call it, is but a special type of consciousness, whilst all about it, parted from it by the filmest of screens, there are potential forms of consciousness entirely different. We may go through life without suspecting their existence, but apply the requisite stimulus and at a touch, they are there in all their completeness. Definite types of mentality, which probably somewhere have their field of application and adaptation. No account of the universe in its totality can be final, which leaves these other forms of consciousness quite disregarded. In any rate, they forbid a premature closing of our accounts with reality. Nespensky quotes, The whole drift of my education goes to persuade me that the world of our present consciousness is only one out of many worlds of consciousness that exist, and that these other worlds must contain experiences which have a meaning for our life also. And Aspensky continues to quote, Looking back on my experiences, they all converge towards a kind of insight to which I cannot help ascribing some metaphysical significance. The keynote of it is invariably a reconciliation. It is as if the opposites of the world, those contradictions and conflict that make all our difficulties and troubles, were melded into unity. Not only do they, as contrasted species, belong to one another and the same genus, but one of the species, the nobler and better one, is itself the genus, so soaks up and absorbs its opposite into itself. This is a dark saying, I know, when thus expressed in terms of common logic, but I cannot wholly escape from its authority, Spensky continues. I feel as if it must mean something, something like what the Hegelian philosophy means, if one can only lay hold of it more clearly. Those who have ears to hear, let them hear. To me, the loving sense of its reality only comes in the artificial mystic state of mind. And Despensky continues to quote, What reader of Hegel can doubt that sense of perfected being, with all its otherness soaked up in itself, which dominates his whole philosophy, must have come from the predominance of consciousness of mystical moods like this, in most persons kept subliminal? The notion is thoroughly characteristic of the mystical level, of the afgarb, brackets the problem, of making it articulate was surely set to Hegel's intellect by mystical feeling. I have friends that believe in the aesthetic revelation. For them, too, it is a monistic insight in which the other is its various forms absorbed into the one. Mrs. Asterix, Professor William James, The Varieties of Religious Experience, Lectures number 16 and 17, Mysticism. Nespensky continues to quote, into the pervading genus, writes one of them, we pass forgetting and forgotten, and thenceforth each is all in God. There is no higher, no deeper, no other than the life in which we are founded. The one remains, and the many change and pass, and each and every one of us is in the one that remains. Dot, dot, dot. This is the ultimatum. Dot, dot, dot. As sure as being, whence is all our care? So sure is content beyond duplexity antithesis or trouble, where I have triumphed in the solitude that God is not above. And in the in brackets, BP blood, 
the anaesthetic revelation of the gist of philosophy, Amsterdam, New York, 1874. And Despensky continues, Zenas Clark, a philosopher who died young, and in brackets, at Amherst in the 80s, was also impressed by the revelation. And Despensky quotes, In the first place, he once wrote to me, Mr. Blood and I agree that the revelation is, if anything, non-emotional. It is, as Mr. Blood says, and he quotes, the one soul and sufficient insight, why or why not, but how, the present is pushed on by the past and sucked forward by the vacuity of the future, dot, dot, dot. It is an initiation of the past. The real secret will be the formula by which the now keeps exfoliating out of itself, yet never escapes. We simply fill the hole with the dirt we dug out. Ordinary philosophy is like a hound hunting its own tail. The more he hunts, the further he has to go, and his nose never catches up with his heels because it is forever ahead of them. So the present is already a foregone conclusion, and I am ever too late to understand it, and in italics, but at the moment of recovery from anaesthesis, then, before starting on life, I catch, so to speak, a glimpse of my heels, a glimpse of the eternal process just in the act of starting, end of italics. The truth is that we travel on a journey that is accomplished before we set out, and the real end of philosophy is accomplished, not when we arrive at, but when we remain in a destination, and in brackets, being already there, which may occur vicariously in this life when we cease our intellectual questioning. That is why there is a smile upon the face of revelation as we view it. It tells us that we are forever half a second too late. That's all. You could kiss your own lips and you could have fun to yourself, it says, if you only knew the trick. It would be perfectly easy if they would manage to stay there till you got around to them. Why don't you manage it somehow? In this latest pamphlet, Mr. Blood describes the value of the anaesthetic revelation of life as follows. The anaesthetic revelation is the initiation of man into the mastery of the open secret of being, revealed in the inevitable vortex of continuity. Inevitable is the word. Its motive is inherent. It is what it has to be. It is not for any love or hate, nor for joy or sorrow, nor good nor ill. Ending, beginning or purpose, it knows not of. It affords no particular of the multiplicity of variety of things, but it fills appreciation of the historical and of the sacred with a secular and intimately personal illumination of the nature and motive of existence. Although it is first startling in its solemnity, it becomes directly such a matter of course, so old-fashioned and so akin to Proverbs that it inspires exultation rather than fear, and the sense of safety is identified with the Aboriginal and the Universal. But no words may express the surpassing certainty of the patient that he is realising the primordial Adamic surprise of life. Repetition of the experience finds it ever the same, and as if it could not be possibly otherwise, the subject resumes his normal consciousness only to partially and fitfully remember its occurrence and to try to formulate its baffling import, with only this consolatory afterthought, that he had known the oldest truth and that he has done with human theories as to the origin, meaning and destiny of the race. He is beyond instruction in spiritual things. The lesson is one of central safety. The kingdom is within. 
all days are judgment days, but there can be no climacteric purpose of eternity, nor any scheme of the whole. The astronomer abridges the row of bewildering figures by increasing his unit of measurement. So may we reduce the distancing multiplicity of things to the unity for which each of us stands. This has been the moral sustenance since I have known of it. In my first printed mention of it, I declared, the world is no more the alien terror that was taught me, spurning the cloud-grimmed and still sultry battlements whence so lately Jehovah thunders boom. Any grey gull lifts her wings against the nightfall and takes the dim leagues with a fearless eye. And now, after twenty-seven years of this experience, the wing is greyer, but the eye is fearless still. Will I renew and doubly emphasise that declaration? I know, as having known, the meaning of existence, the same centre of the universe, at once the wonder of the assurance of the soul, for which the speech of reason has yet no blame but the anaesthetic revelations. And Dispensky continues, after his quote from Professor James, I subjoin, Professor James says, another interesting anaesthetic revelation. This is what the subject, a gifted woman, writes about her experience when she was taking ether for a surgical operation. I wondered if I was in prison being tortured and why I remembered, having heard it said that people learn through suffering, and in view of that what I was seeing, the inadequacy of this saying struck me so much that I said aloud, to suffer is to learn. With that I became unconscious again, and my last dream immediately preceded my real coming too. It only lasted a few seconds, and the most vivid and real to me, though it may not be clear in words. A great being or power was travelling through the sky. His foot was on a kind of lightning as a wheel is on a rail. It was his pathway. The lightning was made of innumerable spirits close to one another, and I was one of them. He moved in a straight line, and each part of the streak or flash came into its short conscious existence only that he might travel. I seemed to be directly under the foot of God, and I thought he was grinding his own life up out of my pain. Then I saw that what he had been trying with all his might to do was to change his course, to bend the line of lightning to which he was tied in the direction he wanted to go. I felt my flexibility and helplessness, and I knew that he would succeed. He bended me, turning his corner by means of my hurt, hurting me more than I had ever been hurt in my life, and at the acutest point of this, as he passed, I saw, and saw is in capital letters. I understood for a moment things that I have now forgotten, things that no one could remember while retaining sanity. The angle was an obtuse angle, and I remember thinking as I woke that he had made it a right or acute angle. I should have both suffered and seen, in inverted commas, still more, and should probably have died. He went on and I came too. In that moment, the whole of my life passed before me, including each little meaningless piece of distress, and I understood them. This is what it all meant. This was the piece of work it had all been contributing to do. I did not see God's purpose. I only saw his intentness and his entire relentlessness towards his means. He thought no more of me than a man thinking of hurting a cartridge when he was firing. And yet on waking my first feeling was, and it came with tears, Domin don sum dogna. 
for I had been lifted into a position for which I was too small. I realised that in that half hour under ether I had served God more distinctly and purely than I had ever done in my life before, and that I am capable of desiring to do. I was the means of his achieving and revealing something. I know not what or to whom, and that to the exact extent of my capacity for suffering. While regaining consciousness, I wondered why, since I had gone so deep, I had seen nothing of what saints call the love of God, nothing but his relentlessness. And then I heard an answer, which I could only just catch, saying, Knowledge and love are one, and the measure is suffering. I gave words as they came to me. With that, I came finally too into what seemed a dream world compared with the reality of what I was leaving. And Aspensky continues, I. S. Simons, whom Professor James mentions, tells of an interesting mystical experience with chloroform. And Aspensky quotes, After the choking and stifling had passed away, I seemed at first in a state of utter blankness. Then came flashes of intense light, alternating with blackness, and with a keen vision of what was going on in the room around me, but no sensation of touch. I thought that I was near death, when suddenly my soul became aware of God, who was manifestly dealing with me, handling me, so to speak, in an intense personal present reality. I felt him streaming in like light upon me. I cannot describe the ecstasy I felt. Then I was gradually awoke from the influence of the anaesthetic. The old sense of my relation to the world began to return, and the new sense of my relation to God began to fade. I suddenly leapt to my feet on the chair where I was sitting and shrieked out, It is too horrible, it is too horrible, it is too horrible, meaning that I could not bear this disillusionment. At last I awoke, dot, 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 calling to the two surgeons who were frightened, Why did you not kill me? Why would you not let me die? End of quote, and Spensky continues. Anesthetic states are very similar to those strange moments experienced by epileptics during their fits of illness. An artistic description of epileptic states we find in Dotorevsky's The Idiot. And Aspensky quotes, He remembered, among other things, that he always had one minute just before the epileptic fit, and in brackets, if it came on whilst he was awake, when suddenly, in the midst of sadness, spiritual darkness and oppression, there seemed at moments a flash of light in his brain, and with extraordinary impetus, all his vital forces suddenly began working in their highest tension. The sense of life, the consciousness of self, were multiplied ten times at these moments, which passed like a flash of lightning. His mind and his heart were flooded with extraordinary light. All his uneasiness, all his doubts, all his anxieties were relieved at once. They were all merged in a lofty calm, full of serene, harmonious joy and hope. Thinking of that moment later, when he was all right again, he often said to himself that all these gleams and flashes of the highest sensation of life and self-consciousness, and therefore also of the highest form of existence, were nothing but disease, the interruption of the normal condition, dot, dot, dot. And yet he came at last to an extremely paradoxical conclusion. What if it is disease? He decided. If the result, if the minute of sensation, remembered and analysed afterwards in health, turns out to be an acme of harmony and beauty, 
and gives a feeling unknown and undivided till then of completeness, of proportion, of reconciliation, and of ecstatic devotional merging in the highest synthesis of life. These vague expressions seemed to him very comprehensible when too weak. That it was beauty and worship, that it really was the highest synthesis of light, he could not doubt, and could not admit to the possibility of doubt, dot, dot, dot. He was quite capable of judging of that when the attack was over. These moments were only an extraordinary quickening of self-consciousness. If the condition was to be expressed in one word, and at the same time of the direct sensation of existence in the most intense degree. Since at that second, that is at the very last conscious moment before the fit, he had time to say to himself clearly and consciously, yet for this moment one might give one's whole life. Then without doubt that moment was really worth the whole of life, dot, dot, dot. For the very thing had happened, he actually had said to himself at that second that, for the infinite happiness that he felt in it, that second really might well be worth the whole of life. At that moment, as he told Rogerson one day in Moscow, dot, 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 at that moment I seemed somehow to understand the extraordinary saying that there shall be time no longer. Probably, he added, smiling, this is the very second which was not long enough for the water to be spilt out of Muhammad's pitcher though the epileptic prophet had time to gaze at all the habitations of Allah. End of quote, Aspensky continues. Narcosis or epilepsy are not all necessary conditions to induce mystical states in ordinary men. Certain aspects of nature appear to have a particular power of awakening such mystical moods, says James. It would be more correct to say that in all conditions of encompassing nature this power lies concealed the change of the seasons, the first snow, the awakening of spring, the summer days rainy and warm, the aroma of autumn, awaken us strange moods which we ourselves do not understand. Sometimes these moods intensify and become the sensation of a complete oneness with nature. In the life of every man there are moments which act upon him more powerfully than others. Upon one a thunderstorm acts mystically, upon another sunrise. A third is, as it were, hypnotised and attracted by the sea. A fourth is absorbed, filled and subjugated by the forest. A fifth is drawn and instructed by rocks. A sixth by fire. The voice of sex, the influence on man of woman, and on woman a man embraces much of that same mystical sense of nature aroused by forest, prairie, sea, dot, dot, dot. The voice of sex, the influence of the eternal feminine on the man, and the eternal masculine on woman, includes within itself the most powerful and most personal sensation of nature. In the sex impulse, man puts himself in the most personal relation with nature. The comparison of the sensation of woman by man, or vice versa, with the feeling for nature is met with very often. And it is really the same sensation, which is given by forest, prairie, sea, mountains, only in the case, as it is more intense, awakens more inner voices, forces the sounding of more inner strings. Animals often give the mystical sensation of nature to men. Almost everyone has his favourite animal, with which he has some inner affinity. In these animals, or through them, men sense nature intimately and personally. 
In Hindu magic, there is a belief that every man has his corresponding animal, through which it is possible to act upon him, through which he himself can act upon others, and into which he can transform himself or be by others transformed. Each Hindu deity has his own particular animal. Rama has a goose, Vishnu an eagle, Shiva a bull, Indra an elephant, Kali a Durga, a tiger, Rama a buffalo, Ganesha a rat, Agni a ram, Kartikeya or, or Sabranya a peacock, Kartikeya or Sabranyanya a peacock, and Kama, the god of love, a parrot. The same thing is true of Greece. All the deities of Olympus had their animals. In the religion of Egypt, sacred animals played an enormous part, and in Egypt, the cat, the most unique of all animals, was held as sacred. The sense of nature sometimes unfolds something infinitely new and profound in things, which seem to have been known a long time and in themselves contain nothing mystical. Aspensky quotes, The consciousness of God's nearness came to me sometimes, quotes Professor James, dot, dot, dot. A presence. I might say, dot, 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 something in myself made me feel a part of something bigger than I, that was controlling. I felt myself one with the grass, the trees, birds, insects, everything in nature. I exulted in the mere fact of existence, of being a part of it all, the drizzling rain, the shadow of the clouds, the tree trunks, and so on. And Aspensky continues, in my own notebook, I found a description of the same experienced state of consciousness. And Aspensky quotes from his notebook, It was in the sea of Mamora on a rainy day of winter. The far-off high and rocky shores were of a pronounced violet colour of every shade, including the most tender, fading into grey and blending with the grey sky. The sea was the colour of lead mixed with silver. I remember all these colours. The steamer was going north. I remained at the rail, looking at the waves. The white crests of waves were running towards us. A wave would run at the ship, raise as though desiring to hurl its crest upon it, rushing up with a howl. The steamer heeled, shuddered, and slowly straightened back. Then from afar, a new wave came running. I watched this play of waves with the ship, and felt them draw me to themselves. It was not at all that desire to jump down, which one feels in mountains, but something infinitely more subtle. The waves were drawing my soul to themselves, and suddenly I felt that it went to them. It lasted an instant, perhaps less than an instant, but I entered into the waves, and with them rushed with the howl of the ship. And in the instant I became all. The waves, they were myself. The far violet mountains, the wind, the clouds hurrying from the north, the great steamship heeling and rushing irresistibly forward, all were myself. I sensed the enormous heavy body, my body, all its motions, shudderings, waverings and vibrations, fire, pressure of steam and weight of engines were inside of me. The unmerciful and unyielding propelling screw which pushed and pushed me forward never for a moment releasing me, the rudder which determined all my motion. All this was myself, also two sailors, dot, 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 and the black snake of smoke coming in clouds out of the funnel, dot, 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 all. It was an instant of unusual freedom, joy and expansion, a second, and the spell of charm disappeared. It passed like a dream when one tries to remember it. 
but the sensation was so powerful, so bright and so unusual that I was afraid to move and waited for it to occur. But it did not return, and a moment later I could not say that it had been, could not say whether it was a reality or merely the thought that looking into the waves it might be so. Two years afterward, the yellowish waves of the Finnish Gulf and the green sky gave me a taste of the same sensation, but this time it was dissipated almost before it appeared. That's the end of the quote from the diary, and Aspensky continues. Similar experiences and the description of experiments of the artificial induction of them by the aid of narcotics or without that aid will enter into the book The Wisdom of the Gods in the chapter on experimental mysticism. The examples given in this chapter do not by any means exhaust the mystical experience of humanity. But what do we infer from them? First of all, unity of experience. In mystical sensations, all men experience something in common, having a similar meaning and connection one with another. The mystics of many ages and many peoples speak the same language and use the same words. This is the first and most important thing that speaks for the reality of the mystical experience. Next is the complete harmony of data regarding such experience, with the theoretically deduced conditions of the world of causes. The sensation of the unity of all, so characteristic of mysticism, a new sensation of time, the sense of infinity, joy or horror, knowledge of the whole and the part, infinite life and infinite consciousness. All these are real sensed facts in the mystical experience. And these facts are theoretically correct. They are such that they should be according to the conclusions of the mathematics of the infinite and of the higher logic. This is all that is possible to say about them. End of chapter 22